When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey, this is Adam from The War on Drugs, and this is the LSQ Podcast. Thank you so much for connecting to do this, Adam. Really, yeah, of course. Uh, nice to talk with you. I guess probably last time we spoke would have been uh, around when A Deeper Understanding came out for some radio kind of brief yeah. meetup. I think we also um, met at Lollapalooza one year. Yes, undoubtedly, but always a brief thing. And so yeah. it's nice to get to have some quality time and, and get to talk about stuff that we haven't gotten to in those other conversations. And I want to say from the outset, the new album is so beautiful. Oh, I, re- I really love it. You. And oh, thanks. By, yeah, you're welcome. And by the time this comes out, the album will also be out. What I like to do here is really zoom out and talk about, you know, all of the other sort of stuff leading up to the war on drugs, you know, and, and less cool. so the project itself. So for starters, tell me a bit about when you first remember like music uh, seeming like something special to you. Uh, I was definitely when I was in seventh grade and got into, um, I mean, Nirvana was probably the first band that kind of just took my imagination, you know what I mean? And that kind of coincided with me having a friend, like a, a new friend who I had met, my friend Jeff, and he played guitar and drums with his dad in their basement. So becoming friends with Jeff, I was in turn becoming friends with him and his dad and kind of playing guitar. And I never, you know, done it, like been around that stuff, like drums or guitar, you know, all yeah. at the same time getting into like music. I mean, I remember, I guess the first compact disc I bought was I was younger than seventh grade. I think it was Phil Collins, but seriously. Great first it, CD purchase. It, with the, I think that's the one with uh, Another Day in Paradise. That, that's the song I, I bought it for. And my brother on the same, we went to Coconuts in Massachusetts and my brother bought um, Skid Row. He was three years older. Um, I'm not sure in <laughs> retrospect who made the better purchase. But um, I think, I think you win that one in terms of might, who, in terms of yeah. canon. I'm just going right. to go with Phil Collins. <laughs> yeah, but there wasn't. I mean, most of the music I was into, even before that, was basically whatever my brother was into. There wasn't a ton of music in my house. I mean, my dad was older, so he kind of listened to a lot of classical, mostly classical music, or like Harry Belafonte, or sometimes some like big band music traditional sounding stuff yeah and a lot of like am radio you know and my mom i remember i do remember at a young age her loving roy orbison so we had always had a couple roy orbison tapes in the car but that was really it there wasn't like a ton of of stuff all the time being played so i kind of learned you know any whatever i might have been into from radio or from my brother you know Um, yeah but something about nirvana hit different you're saying yeah, I think it was just one of those things that 
everybody. It just like, and I didn't even have MTV or anything. So it wasn't like I saw the video. It just, it was like that thing that moved through people my age. And it just became, I mean, it was just, I don't know. It just was everything at that time, you know? Right. Um, but was that, was that the first thing that made you sort of see the, the possibility that like, oh, I could play guitar and do music? Yeah, basically. Yeah. I mean, I think the idea was just wanting to, like when I, when I first played guitar or plugged something in, it was like this rush of electricity and excitement through the floor. And like, I don't know if I thought at that moment that I um, wanted to like express myself with music or something, but I wanted to like definitely play the guitar again, you know? Yeah. Like I wanted to like feel that, that electricity. Um, that was a, that was at Jeff's house. Yeah, that was at Jeff's house. Yeah. Was it Jeff's yeah. guitar? Yeah, it was his dad's. He has a red washburn through like, um, you know, with like active pickups and through like, you know, a PV and, um, and like a, ART digital processing system. Basically the rig I've been chasing since since then. <laughs> Basically the rig that I'll end up using in about six years. You felt feelings. I felt, yeah, I felt that and I felt the I felt the the, the house shake, which was which was which was awesome. And and just the idea too that it was like a drummer and I never played with the drummer, you know, or and all that. It was just like Damn. it was the whole thing. And then getting into into Nirvana and really everything else at the time too. I mean, I loved Nirvana. I loved Pearl Jam. I loved Alice in Chains. I loved Soundgarden. That was my first concert, basically. So would you guys learn those songs? Yeah, we would learn basically all those songs. Uh, Siamese Dream, we basically played note for note, except the, I mean, who can play those solos? But I mean, basically played all the, the, the so- basic songs on those records. So and, how, um, how, how, like how, in how obsessively when this began, did you, did it kick off? Like, and, and were you just at that point began to be self-taught or did you? Yeah, I think by that point, you know, I would, I, I would it, in any capacity try to get invited over to Jeff so that we could jam. So maybe it was shrouded in like, let's play some basketball or um, <laughs> yeah, he's like, yeah. And I love, you know, I like, playing basketball too but at the end of the, I wanted to make sure we got into that jam room you know <laughs> sorry Jeff if you're listening he loves you but <laughs> oh yeah I know we've we've um, we, you know we've stayed in touch for yeah. sure so it's, it's <laughs> awesome but yeah we I, I've I never really had a lesson but I guess I just a friend of mine at the same time he got a bass and I got a guitar so we were both you know into the same music and he bought a white bass and then I got this guitar Couple, maybe a year or two after I really got into it at Jeff's and um, same kind of thing. I mean, we just learned the songs of the day and then old, you know, we learned a bunch of stone songs and it was, the, it's, it's actually really crazy to remember this, but that was like the very early days of the internet. Cause we were going to my friend, Tom, we were going to his mom's office at Boston college and printing out tablature from the internet but this was like 94 you know yeah you don't really think of the internet being around then but it was in this weird archaic but yeah we would go and print out tablature for the stones you know not so much Beatles, but whatever oasis anything we could find and we would just learn how to play our favorite songs and, and kind of um 
then one day I got asked to play bass in a talent show at another school. This kid was, he was a huge, he was basically like Massachusetts biggest Smashing Pumpkins fan. And he asked me to play bass on Bullet with Butterfly Wings. And then, so I was happy to, even though I liked guitar, but then my friend who played bass got mad at me because I should have essentially passed the gig on to him, you know? <laughs> it was like a, <laughs> but we somehow worked it out, I guess, but I, I played bass for this talent show, but, but yeah, I mean, it was just that kind of thing, you know, and I, um, I wasn't at that age, you know, I just liked playing and, and, and sharing that moment with my friends, but I wasn't, um, I didn't see it as something that I needed to, or I wanted to like use to express myself at that, you know, I, I was still just like a big fan of music and learning. And I, I don't know, I didn't really yeah, like think vis- and the, vis- the visceral thing too. Yeah. Like I didn't think it was something that I, that I wanted to pursue like to that on, on that level, but. Well, I, what be- I what just, be- yeah, what began to push it in that direction? I think just over time, like it just became like such a constant in my life. Like I just kept playing and kept learning about guitar and getting more interested in everything. And, and got more interested in, in music, obviously, and different kinds of music and, you know, picked up learning the piano a little bit here and there over the years. And then at, at one point, you know, my early 20s, I just kind of, I was waiting for, like, I knew that, that by that point that I wanted to pursue some level of, like, um, creativeness in, in music, but I still didn't really know much about, like, what, how to do it really but I knew that music was so important to me and something that was just a constant in my life so I kind of just I bought a um an eight track digital recorder and started to learn how to work on songs and and record them myself and expand on ideas and um that was a, a year, about two years before I moved to Philadelphia and then I, when I moved to Philadelphia in 2003 I was 24 I kind of met a lot of people very quickly that were into the same stuff. And that was where I, I think I just, I just learned a lot in a couple, in a span of a couple of years. Yeah. Yeah. Or had you, before you moved to Philly, had you started like going to shows or having friends who had had bands that, you know, did original songs and stuff? In, um, yeah, I went to shows in high school, obviously. And, and then um, when I lived in California, in Oakland, we went to shows I didn't have I didn't really have that many friends at that point play like in in this in a scene or anything you know playing music um so I think that was part of why it was kind of a, a little bit of a mystery to me but when I moved to F- Philly I ended up kind of entering that that world more so than I ever had before yeah it's just do, one of those that, things do, like, do any do any do any shows or sort of memories stand out in particular as like a galvanizing moment for not just being impressed by someone's show, but, but uh, it lighting a fire under you to do music more seriously. Well, it wasn't obviously an indie band, but you know, in 2004, Kurt and my, Kurt Vile and myself, we went to see um, Bob Dylan at the Troc, which if you know the Troc, it's like a small, pretty small theater, you know, yeah. maybe 1100. And we saw him there and that was kind of like a, a, a pretty intense moment because it was like, so um 
transcendent. But I, I do remember like along those lines, like um, before I moved to Philadelphia, I remember going to the Somerville Theater in Boston and watching that Wilco movie, you know, I'm trying to break your heart. Mm. And I watched it by myself and I had just moved back from California and um, I went and saw it by myself on the big screen. And I just remember watching that movie and feeling like knowing that that was what like I wanted to be doing, which is be creating, you know, like in a room with, with people and experimenting and like arriving at things that felt special. And I just hadn't really, it hadn't clicked in a way until I watched that movie. It was like, it just made sense that, that, you know, I wanted to be surrounded by creative people and, and I wanted to be part of a community. You you can't really do at, at a certain point, like recording ideas in your bedroom without any like connection to the outside world wasn't really gonna, not even that it wouldn't go anywhere, but it wasn't really going to be fulfilling, you know? Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting that you described starting with, you know, starting with getting, what did you say? It was a four track or an eight track. Um, Yeah. Eight track. Yeah. An eight track. Yeah. Like, so you weren't sitting there with the guitar strumming and just kind of writing early songs that way you were arranged, you were recording and, you know, like arranging songs essentially as, as your earliest songs you wrote. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. I mean, in, in, when I, when we were younger, Jeff and his dad, they had a, um, you know, classic Tascam four track and we made recordings, but I didn't, I, I didn't like gravitate towards it. Like I didn't, um, know how to use it. I wasn't like obsessed with learning how they were doing it. You know, I was just playing and they were recording. Then I'd get a tape the next weekend. I'd be like, Oh, this is awesome. You know, and it sounded horribly. It sounded cool. I loved the way it sounded. I loved hearing whatever we were jamming on, but it wasn't something that at that age I was like, yeah, dying to figure out. Yeah. 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 I mean, it's interesting. um, It's interesting because even like listening to your new album, I was thinking about, you know, just curious about at what point the larger arrangements start to uh, you, when you start to hear them, you know, in your process of the song like when you when you begin to hear what it's going to do at the point when it's it's biggest you know but you know kind of looking back and and hearing that you started writing songs with an eight track as 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 kind of the mechanism for it, it it makes me think that that maybe that's always been a part of it I mean tell me a little bit about kind of how that early songwriting process you know took shape and what elements of it are still kind of a key part of your creative songwriting process i mean i think yeah i mean off the top of my head like the machine i had this boss machine that ran with zip disks like you know you could plug your guitar directly into it and and play through any number of guitar sounds and um you know i don't know i mean for me, it's like, I've never felt like that there's, that there's been some thing I'm chasing with each album or each recording, I should say, that, that I've worked on over the years. Like, it's always a mystery, you know, and it's always like a journey. I think with where some of the more current music ended up feeling bigger or with like, 
the extensive kind of work we do in the studio, I think that's just a reflection of like learning how to use the studio better than I did 10 years ago, you know, 15, 20 years ago. And you, and when you, I guess, when you understand what you can do and how to do it, then you kind of unlock a, a few things in the actual writing of stuff to get there. But I don't know. I, I never felt like I was always tapped into something that I'm ta more tapped into now. It's really just been a process of learning how to write a song and, and feeling like whatever you're doing is better than the last thing you wrote, I guess. You mentioned this Bob Dylan show at the Troc, and um, yeah, I want to talk some more about Bob Dylan because obviously he's a you know his influence looms large for all of us in in the rock world and in your music in particular. And of course, I noticed immediately that on the title track, to "I Don't Live Here Anymore," right out of the gate, you've got "Creature Void of Form" reference. Yeah. So it's a thing you've embraced, right? Because you can't, you know, as a singer-songwriter, a, a white male singer-songwriter, you know, you, there's going to be the Dylan thing, right? It enters the equation at a certain point. Yeah. Just so tell me about kind of your evolving relationship with Dylan and why he's such a deep source of influence for you. Yeah, I mean, I guess it's just one of those things like throughout my youth, I, I knew him kind of, you know, peripherally, like with the hits, you know, uh, whatever the hits may have been like, and then somewhere along the lines, I heard, you know, the, the like the blood on the tracks, New York sessions, like the, like the bootleg series disc with all mm -hmm. the acoustic versions of everything. And that's really when um, I got like deep, deeply into it. And, you know, and then from there, you kind of get into all the out, like all the albums much deeper. And, and then I think just a lot of things lined up, like having a friend, um, who was a little bit older than me and was like basically a Dylanologist. So he was like, he was just like, a, he was like a teacher, you know what I mean? Yeah. And then also moving to California around the same time and kind of, you know, living in the Bay Area and listening to, you know, mid 60s Dylan and, and being inspired by beat poets, you know, the whole thing was just lining up like, yeah, you know, going to the Henry Miller Library and being in Jack Kerouac Street and then listening to Blonde on Blonde, you know, and then you see the photo hanging in City Lights of Bob and Michael McClure, you know, it's like, um, but yeah, it was just like one of those, you know, I remember driving up the Highway 1 with a, in our friend's pickup truck listening to, you know, Highway 61 and it was just one of those things, but it just remained, you know, and um, I remember when I was in Living in Oakland, I bought the um, the live 1966 Albert Hall concert on record. And that was another thing that kind of just propelled the obsession. And then when I moved to Philly, you know, it's one of the, it's just like everyone I was meeting was also super into it. So we just, it's just one of those things. Like when I met Kurt, we were both into like the same kind of era of Dylan and the eat the document stuff and the you know the the 60 like the strumming kind of like the low droning tuned C stuff and um yeah, you just keep meeting people along the way that that bring you in different directions with Dylan but yeah I mean he's one of yeah. those artists that even if you're not even if you don't play music like me if you're a fan of his he prompts you to obsess in a way or to just wonder like how does he do it 
you know, in a way that some other artists don't, I would imagine as yeah. a singer songwriter yourself, that question as you're working on your own craft, if you really are, you know, uh, a fan of his appreciator of his in that way, like can't help but make you as a lyric writer and so forth, like dig deeper or try and, you know, have a, it's a very high watermark to try and live up to, obviously. Yeah. And also, I mean, he's just like so weird. That's the best part. I mean, his, I love his writing, obviously, but it's like the thing that really brings you, attracts you to him is just how strange he is. You know what I mean? And that's like the best part of him. Like, oh yeah. No, even I mean, when I saw him at the, the Newport Folk Festival, 2002, he hadn't played it since 65 and he returned to the Newport Folk. And like, you know, he came, he showed up late, but he, when he finally got there, he was wearing like a fake wig or a wig and like, and a fake, and a fake beard. And like the night before he had played in Worcester and he was like, you know, he looked like he had, you know, he had like played into this whole character. They were making a big deal that he hadn't played it in 35 years and. True weirdo. You know, yeah. So what, what have been some kind of important moments for you in the process of working harder on, on songwriting and recording discoveries that you've made that you feel like really kind of pivoted what you're doing in, in a meaningful way? I mean, musical discoveries are just kind of like... Yeah, well, no, just, I mean, like things like things you learned or, or way, you know, ways of doing things or whatever, just major, you know, moments or um techniques or whatever not not other artists or anything like that i just mean like over the course now of making all of these albums there there must be things where you're like you know what this is this is actually how i get where i'm trying to go i think the main thing is trying to squeeze as much as you can out of like one simple idea you know because usually whenever i'm demoing something or writing something like you know, at night in my little room, like there's usually, whatever I end up working on is something that in the moment was very simple and very sparse and like created a nice spark within me. You know, it's like, you might've only put down an acoustic bass drum machine and scratch and like, you know, scratch vocal, but in the morning you're like obsessed with this, this thing that you did very quickly. And um, sometimes those ideas can, peter out but I don't I'm not the kind of guy that has like 70 songs for 10 songs on an album you know so I try to just stay true to that that feeling whenever I'm when I work on something that excites me and trying to find any number of ways to just keep that to remember that that that's the song you're working on which which always will have peaks and valleys like you start working on it and it feels like it's going to be the best song ever. And then two months later, you're like, what am I even like? This song is just complete <laughs> trash. Like doesn't, you know, it's like, it's boring. It has no groove, whatever. And I guess for me, it's like, I just try to remember that, you know, I have to let it reveal itself sometimes. And I remember when we were making Lost in the Dream and um we were mixing in reverse like one of the it was one of the first songs we mixed maybe at the end of the first week I think it was like the fifth song we mixed and it was just kind of like we had it up on the console and I remember in that it was the first time I was just kind of like told Nicholas the mixer I was like I right, just like basically mute everything besides 
you know, a couple keyboards and the guitar, you know, and it wasn't like I had really been thinking that much about it. It was just like one of those things where in the moment I was just, and we weren't even stuck on the song. It was kind of like going along normally like a song would with drums. And um, it felt like, and then we kind of committed to that idea and had this kind of long ambient-ish intro with vocals over it. And it felt very cinematic, um, but it wasn't really crafted that way. You know, it was kind of very spur of the moment decision that felt very right when we did it. And I think when I played it, the next day for some guys in the band, I think they were like confused because all it was like such a, a big decision and that we could, that we had, or I had committed to. And I just remembered that and it's always stuck with me. It's like when you're working on stuff, try to make, try to, you know, make big decisions and try to stick with them, you know, and try to commit to them. And, and sometimes they'll lead you down paths on a song that you didn't, expect to go to you know I mean the same thing pretty much happened with on the new album the song Old Skin which was a similar kind of song where I had a demo of it I recorded it one afternoon and it kind of sounded like Jesus and Mary Chain uh, not as aggressive maybe but it was like really kind of pretty and it had that that like metallic kind of sound to it and then we recorded it with the band and it was always kind of just boring you know and it just had this, it was just galloping along for five minutes. And I was like, the song, I was like, it's cool. I know it's cool. I know that there's something I want to say in this song, but whatever we're working with is just incredibly boring. And it just, I mean, I'm serious. I was like, I, you know, I don't want to throw it in yet, but this song is just, is terrible. Um, so I was like, how can I, there was things about it that I liked. Like I was droning on one note in the verses on the, on the synth or something. So we just kind of kept building it up and adding stuff to it, but it, I, was, I was never really convinced. And then at one point, basically in the same idea, I was just like, mute everything besides this, this, and this. You know, like the four things that I like about the song, but just listen to those things. And um, that's what we did. And all of a sudden it opened up a whole new cinematic sonic terrain thing that was happening. And I was like, oh, and then when I was like, let's just bring the drums in halfway through that middle section. And it just happened that that's where he had hit a cymbal. Like it sounds like they could actually come in there, you know? Yeah. It wasn't really, con it wasn't really conceived that way in the moment. It wasn't like we were in the room, but it just happened that bringing them in that section, it actually made sense. And it was just one of those things and ended up, you know, a week later, it was like, I felt like it was like a really great moment on the record that a week before I was just struggling to find some sort of identity with the song you know yeah. and and it's just those things happen and it's possible that we've done we've made decisions like that on a million songs that you know sometimes you go back you're like oh it's not really working but to answer your question I think it's just about for me it's like just try to get out of whatever you think it needs to sound like or whatever you might have like imagined on the in the room with the guys like nothing is nothing is um nothing has to remain you know you can bend this reality like this illusion of a band playing in any number of ways um and once we kind of once i think about it like that i i, I have a lot of a lot of fun um crafting arrangements and and trying to present this kind of 
this illusion of this of this band in in that moment you know like where does that song f fall in the record what is the sentiment of that song what's what's the what's the mood of the of the song and what's come what's it coming out of you know yeah um so yeah that, that that song was kind of that that similar kind of um that similar kind of thing it's interesting how much of it yeah it sounds like one of the consistent things is that you want to honor the like instinct the <clears throat> You know, the initial instinct, the spark of excitement you had about the song when you first thought of it, even if you got away from that with working on it a lot, you know, but that even in that process, when you're worried you're working on it too much, if you can kind of recreate this instinctive moment with it to bring back some of that spark, you know, it can turn into a whole other thing. For sure. Yeah. And sometimes I think it's just about, is no right answer. Like there's no right way to arrange a song or there's no right way to write the song. I think it's just one of the reasons people get demoitis maybe when they're doing something in their bedroom and it's because they're doing it all themselves. You know what I mean? It's like, because they had, they had nothing. And then an hour later they had something. And it's like, that makes you feel like it's special, you know, because you had a blank tape and then you had a pretty vocal melody and guitar and a drum machine and you know and a keyboard part and and so when you start trying to run it with the guys and you try to make it something that it never was it's easy to think you're getting away from it because you're kind of um all of a sudden that little thing isn't it's not all yours anymore you know and yeah. it, it's like that's the thing that sometimes makes a song special is because it's something that you created out of thin air um, and after, in an afternoon or a night or whenever. And um, it's tough to, to let go of it and, and try to imagine what it's like when it's a little bit more um, realized, you know, because something about it being just yours is, is what's nice, what, what makes it feel important, you know? You, you know, you talk about kind of how the influence of these other musicians and collaborators that you're, you're, you've crossed paths with over the years, you know, obviously has had a, a key impact on the songs that you've recorded. Is there is, you know, is there a particular kind of panel of people or a couple of, of friends or collaborators who you trust kind of with opinions and feedback on tunes that are still in development? Like, do you have any kind of gurus that you turn to for? For opinions i would say my main guru is is dave dave from the band dave hartley our bass player uh i mean he's been in the band since i mean even before it was really a band 2007 you know uh we we worked together um in west philly at this job and we became friends and then you know everyone was just kicking around the scene and he would come over to my house and jam and play bass or guitar or keyboards whatever we were just making making sounds and um but it's been so long now with dave that he's just like i pretty much obsessively organize my dropbox like i have this dropbox and i um i work on demos and i put them in the dropbox but i don't really tell people what's in there i just put stuff there and sometimes you know you're able people can just go into it and check and scope it out but uh, I never really make a big deal of it. But Dave always makes a point of um, going in there and he'll remind me, you know, when we're in the studio 
or even better, like when, when we get, you know, when we're, the guys come out to LA and we're working in the studio and in the morning we're out getting eggs or some breakfast or something. And he'll be like, oh man, um, listen to, uh, you know, Oceans of Darkness demo. We got, we should work on that today. And it's kind of like, oh yeah, cool. I didn't even know you knew it was there. You know, I was like, that's just something I put up last week, you know? Um, Dang, and it kind of makes, awesome. yeah, and it just makes you feel like, like your songs matter to some, that your songs matter to somebody else, you know? And so it's like, like, I don't really sit around with my friends and like talk about my songs. So it's like, in the moment when you're working in the studio, it's like, that's really what you're there for. So just to have someone kind of guide you on that path um, with the title track, I don't live here anymore. It was kind of a thing I had put that, I had sent that to Robbie um, just as a very simple demo. And because Robbie's another one who I really trust, Robbie and Dave basically, like I'll send them, little demos and they always see the bigger picture and and Robbie a week later he sent back a version of I don't live here anymore but with I had just given him like drum machine whatever vocal guitar it was just like an idea I had and he sent back this version with like the the hook you know what I mean like na 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 and I was like I remember I was walking into a surla table to buy a roasting pan for Thanksgiving and um, every time I roast a turkey with that thing, I'll remember because <laughs> I swear I got, I got the email. I was like, Robbie shared something with me. I was like, oh, cool. I'll put my headphones on, walk into the store. And like the second I pressed play, it was like this, this r descending riff that I was like, oh man, I could, I could see the song all of a sudden, you know, like yeah. that was like, oh my God, I couldn't believe. Cause it, it was like, so quintessential like it sounds like it would be something that I would have written or that it's already sounded like our band but Robbie wrote it and it was just so perfect for the mood and the way that song ended up two years later like I mean that that descent that simple descending those notes like are just so perfect and um and that song didn't have a chorus originally when I sent it to him but it was just one of those things and, and maybe it was like six months later we were in the studio and I had at that point kind of I hadn't really forgotten about that song but it wasn't the song that I was like eager to start working on I was almost like scared to start working on it because I didn't want to ruin it like it felt like so pure right now and it's weird little homemade phase but Dave was like we should work on I don't live here anymore I was like okay and we started playing it like in the room and it was like kind of janky. I was like, I don't know. But then we got this drum sound where I, the room mics were really loud. And I was like, whoa, what's that sound? And the guy was like, oh, this room mics are just really loud. And so we ended up cutting a, a very early idea of it with just that's the sound that was happening in the room with those drums. And then it kind of took on a whole new, whole new form. But Dave and Robbie definitely and with Sean, I mean, this is the second record that Sean Everett and I have worked together on and like any friendship, you know, with time comes under more, you know, a better understanding and, and, and everything gets better. So we just understand each other way more on this record. And we just had a blast, not always, but most of the time. 
had, a, I mean, you never always have a blast, but the, the memory I have is, is that we always had a blast working on this record for three years. So. so how, I mean, and how, at what point in the process did the lyrics come in or begin to take shape? Like with, I don't live here anymore, for instance, that Sur La Tabla, uh, like are the, <laughs> are the lyrics at that point on there or is it scratch? Sometimes, yeah, usually there's always, I feel like the title of the song is usually the one, like for I don't live here anymore, I was strumming these two chords. And um, when I went down to my room at night, I, I was just singing to my microphone and that I don't live here anymore came out. Like I kind of had all these weird verses that I was improvising, but I had that refrain, I don't live here anymore. And I was like, oh, that's cool. I didn't really get it all yet, but I knew I was like, that's a nice little turn of phrase, you know? I, I rarely, maybe ever, I've never really sat and like had an idea that I was able to like fully write in the moment like out, like it's not like I carry around vocals or lyrics for months before the, the sonics are, are finished. Like usually right. I have it's like it's sketches. To go with the mel- it's to go with the melody. Yeah, I have the melody or I have a, an idea of the song and it kind of shapes as the, um, as the songs, sonics keep shaping. But something like Living Proof, that one, maybe just because I had recorded it like five different times before the album version, but I had a pretty good sense of by that point of the lyrics. And basically we recorded as a band in LA. And then like the next day, I think I did a scratch vocal, but that's the vocal on the record. I just never did it again. So I kind of just stepped up to the mic and did it in one take. I was like, all right, that's cool for now. You know, and then we just, I just never felt like I needed to redo it. And that's pretty rare, but yeah, the lyrics were always kind of, evolving to the point where it's almost it's always this this way at the end towards the end of the record there's always like these holes in songs where I still don't have the lyric because I either got used to a certain you know phonetic gibberish thing or I just can't decide on the lyric because I've been rewriting it so many times that I can't make a decision so there's always these like chaotic three days where I'm like I have like 17 little sections to punch and I'm sitting there with it playing on loop in my headphones at Sean's. And I'm like, Oh my God, I'm wasting this guy's time. This guy hates me. <laughs> I swear to God. And I just like, just let it run on loop. I'll sit there and I'll be just looping for like 17 minutes, this like nine second section. And I'm trying to come up with four words. And this guy's probably like, dude, just open a dictionary and look at four, the first four words that come to you. And I'm like, and then I'll get it and then I'll be like, wait, back it up. And then I'll be like, actually, give me one more, sh-. you know. Luckily this time, Sean's assistant, Ivan, was there for that. Not so much Sean, but, but yeah. And then, but then I ended up like, I kind of make it through that, that process and I'm, I end up really happy with the little, the little bits that I ended up kind of, that you would never know, but they're little things that I get attached to that I really want to make sure that I get right, you know? Yeah. And I'm sure with that process too, there's the same thing of like, you know, the chaos that you're describing is also like a moment to go back to instinct and think like, you know what you want to say, you know what you're saying, you know what you've been talking about on these, you know what I mean? Like whatever you come up with is true. Yeah. And it's good. It's like, you can't at a certain point, the, you know, I guess it's the fluctuation between overthinking and not overthinking. Exactly. And actually I feel like it's sometimes those moments the the, two, the little line you're ended up and trying to punch actually ends up being like 
the center of the song in some weird way, you know? Yeah. Like you, you try to like wrap up everything you've been trying to say in the song. It's almost like the song's like, all right, you have one more shot to like try to, you know, write what the song's about. And so you, you try to put it all in like one line, you know? Like that song changed, that third song, that third verse that was after the, the middle section, there's a line, it's like, so damn hard to make that change, you know? But that was the line I was like, I had on loop for like an hour. And I was trying to figure out this thing. And then I kind of eventually ended up there on that line. And I was like, oh, cool. I kind of like wrapped up the song that I've been working on for three years in this moment of chaos, you know? <laughs> and it made me feel really good. Cause I was like, oh yeah, okay. It's like, every time you make an album or something, you you get used to remembering that there's ups and there's downs, you know, it's like you start the record the first three months, you're like calling your manager, like in your label, like, Oh yeah, I'm going to be done with this thing. Two weeks, three weeks tops. You know, <laughs> like the songs are flowing. It's good. We're all out here in the studio. I, you know, it's May 1st. We'll be done June 1st, no doubt. You know, and then, you know, June 1st of the next year, you're like, you hate, you know, you hate the record. It's all a mess everything you know no one likes any of the songs so i'm used I'm, i know how that's this 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 flows now and i know that now yeah in like year three i'm gonna be like you know laying in the floor at sean's like with headphones on listening to a four second part of a song on loop trying like furiously typing at my at my computer one more time just one more time one more time sorry 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 dude sorry sorry one more time yeah, it must take on a different character when you when you start to go out and then play the song, play the new songs live, and it's a whole different thing, and you get to see what the audiences really react to, and and that kind of yeah. thing. Yeah, yeah, that's like the real, that's like where the real song lies, you know. But yeah, I mean, we haven't really been able to. Um, we haven't. The guys were just out here a couple months. They were here in July. And that was the first time we got together in 18 months, 20 months. And none of these songs on the record were really played in the room. So we haven't really got to investigate how they feel being played by people, you know? So even we were super rusty the first one or two days, but then we settled into like a really nice thing for two weeks. And you all you realize pretty quickly that these songs are any song really. And that's like another Dylan thing. He He always talks about like, you know, the real song is really when it's played for people, you know, in a room by, by a band, but played for people in a moment. And that's where the, the real song happens. So yeah, we're just trying to um, figure out, you know, the framework and then we can, we can let that happen. Yeah. 2022, it's all happening. I believe it when I see it. <laughs> so at this point now with a couple of months to go or a month and a half to go before the album comes out, it, it, how, how do you feel? I mean, is there a normal, like before it comes out, I feel great or before it comes out, I feel weird or. I think in the, this is maybe the first record I remember just being excited for it to be finished and for, um, for it to come out and for us to start, the whole thing up and play some shows and rehearse and get ready for tour and yay he's I don't know still, why I, I, he's feeling yeah, good I feel I feel like yeah we you know Sean and I we really worked hard at the end to get it I think where we wanted it to be and we both had a, a we had a lot of fun wrapping up the record 
and we had like you know basically in the 25th hour we had this like epic 14 hours basically the greatest 14 hour studio session of my life which was we had basically mastered the record we'd finished the record we had mastered it and i was living in portland for a few few months while my girlfriend was working up there and we were supposed to approve everything and we were me and sean were both like i don't know you know we were like we're not ready to approve it something wasn't right it wasn't anything in particular it was just something wasn't right yet and um i ended up flying from portland down to la and we went over to went over to sean's and we were, i was there from like 5 p.m until 4 a.m and we basically remixed every song. Like we opened up every song and made a few tweaks to it. I was like, yeah, the acoustic guitars need to be just a little bit louder here. And, and we had, on some of them, we actually made some fairly bold changes. We ended up using, instead of the masters, we ended up using like mixes that we had done for some songs. Like, and we ended up like cutting them in half and grabbing another mix and using that as the back half of the song. And that idea I was saying about like when we were just making a decision and committing to it and no matter how bold it may have felt in the time, that's kind of what we were doing with like the met with the mixes, like, but it made a lot of sense in that moment, in that 12 hours. And we basically reshaped the entire album in one session, like whatever we would have had before this, it was not the same record as what we ended up with. And so we mastered it. I think we were on the third round round of revisions for mastering. And then we were both like, we were talking in the phone. It was like that Jimmy Iovine, Tom Petty thing. Like he called me every night for 400 days. We talked for 12 hours. <laughs> and I was like, you know, I was like, how did, did they ever really do that? And now I'm like, they probably did. Cause me and Sean were talking all the time when I was in Portland about these, about this record. But yeah, we ended up like, in this kind of marathon session, just making all these little tweaks that really changed the whole vibe of the record. And, and then we both like, we were both so high on that moment for like a week. And we just knew that whatever we were gonna turn in now to get mastered, we just felt like we did it. You know what I mean? It's like, we, we, we saw it through the way we, want, we wanted to see it through. And all these little, you know, he was really attached to like some, drum sounds or this or that or whatever it may have been and we got there together and so now that it's done I'm just excited for it to be done and out and coming out and to and for the next phase which is learning how to perform them you know and share them with people amazing I I'm I wonder if someday will there'll be like a we, we got to get the bootleg series going the war on drugs right series. Yeah, so we can hear the the original what it would have been if not for that fourteen hour mind meld. That's awesome. I know it was. Yeah, it was. It, yeah, it was special. Well, Adam, thank you so much for connecting to to do this with me. Hey, you're welcome. Thank you. All right. Well, that does bring us to the end of episode sixty eight of the LSQ podcast. Thanks again to Adam from the War on Drugs, and they're on tour starting in January. Check the dates at thewarondrugs.net. I'm Jenny Elliskew. Appreciate you listening. Episode 69, nice, is out in a few weeks, and it's actually extra nice because Courtney Barnett will be my guest in that, the final episode of this season. I'm already recording stuff for next year that I'm stoked about. 
Uh, you can reach me with questions and feedback at Jenny LSQ. Talk to you next time.